Welcome to the sixth episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. For those of you that may be tuning in for the first time, this show is presented as a series of segments. These segments will cover everything from cybersecurity news to analyzing techniques employed by adversaries. We will be interviewing cybersecurity experts, and we're even going to try and have some fun with hacker history. Before I outline today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to appeal to you, the listener. As technology professionals, we are very lucky to have the opportunities that we do. We work hard, and that hard work is rewarded with abundance. Sadly, there are many people the world over that, despite how hard they work, struggle to get proper nutrition for themselves and their families. Globally, 14 million children under the age of 5 suffer from acute malnutrition, with 2 million of them dying each year. This is not okay, and it most certainly should not be normalized. This year, a group of volunteer cybersecurity professionals and their companies are banding together to help and maybe even save some lives. Cybersecurity Cares is a holiday fundraising initiative being put forth by the community, and we want you to join us. We're going to be fundraising from November 29th to December 16th, and are going to have a lot of fun doing it. The barriers to participate are low, and we want you to help us build momentum. You can learn more about this grassroots initiative by visiting cybersecurity-cares.com. To start off today's episode, Dr. Gerald Ozier of Simply Cyber is going to take us through the last couple weeks in cybersecurity news. After that, we sit down with cloud detection engineer David Burkett to talk about everything from detection strategies to why everybody is moving to Mastodon. And we even get into the recent unidentified aerial phenomenon phenomenon. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jerry, and this is the Simply Cyber Report, powered by Lima Charlie, the top cyber news stories you need to know about right now. As if the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, also known as CISA, wasn't awesome enough with Director Jen Easterly driving the boat over there, it was announced in November 2022 that CISA's Cybersecurity Education and Training Assistance Program will fund and make available to all 50 U.S. states the Cyber.org range. Cyber.org will provide K-12 students access to virtualized environments and structured lab work at no cost. Students are enabled to learn cybersecurity skills and even be adequately prepared for the Security Plus certification exam. This is a fantastic opportunity to normalize cybersecurity education and help drive a safer citizenship and hopefully develop a prepared cybersecurity workforce for the next generation. Elon Musk taking over at Twitter has been front page news nearly every single day. And recently, the CISO chief privacy officer and chief compliance officer all exited the company. And while that is interesting, the real Twitter story from today's report is the rollout of the paid verification blue checkmark system. As speculated as a potential system that could be abused by threat actors, Eli Lilly was the first victim of an attack with this service as a fraudulent account paid for the blue checkmark appeared to be Eli Lilly and announced insulin would now be free. Now, that fraudulent account has since gone private and lost its blue checkmark, but not before Eli Lilly's stock lost 4.5% in value in just a few hours. Today's final story engages the GRC side of the house. Zurich, the insurance giant, had a $100 million lawsuit settlement with Mondelez over whether or not Zurich was obligated to pay out on an insurance policy when Mondelez was caught in the crossfire as collateral damage in the 2017 Not Petya attack. Now, two key points to note here. One, 
This is no surprise, as Merck earlier this year successfully won a lawsuit against Zurich for the same exact situation. And two, this will signal a massive reevaluation of the cyber insurance market, the definition of acts of war, and if cyber policies are even a viable insurance instrument. To put a finer point on this dynamic aspect of our industry, according to FedScoop, cyber insurance saw a 75% increase in premiums in just 2021. Remember to check out simplycyber.io slash streams to get longer form, deeper dive cyber threat briefings every single weekday morning. I'm Gerald Ozier from Simply Cyber. Consider yourself armed with knowledge. Next up, my conversation with David Burkett, detection engineer and UFO enthusiast. Currently focused on cloud threat detection, David has had a wide and varied career in cybersecurity, consulted for large companies, published papers, and won awards. I've known David for a few years now and thoroughly enjoy it every time we get a chance to talk. Thanks for being here today, David. Yes, that's Chris. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Your work is currently focused in cloud threat detection. How is that different from working as like a SOC analyst or a regular detection engineer? So it's actually... It's very similar to a just a regular detection engineer, um, but there are a lot of SOC skill sets that uh, overlap. Uh, so I'll actually kind of describe it from a SOC analyst perspective and then how they all kind of step up to each other or kind of overlap. So as a SOC analyst, you're going to be really familiar with something like the uh, cyber kill chain. Uh, and as a detection engineer, uh, you're also going to be uh, integrating the uh, kill chain into your workflow or at least I do. So the idea being, um, as a detection engineer, you're probably going to build uh, your detection off three sources of intel. Third-party stuff, so the various vendor threat reports. Uh, internal stuff, so anything that's actually a true positive, uh, you want to work your way back up the kill chain. And that's kind of where it becomes important. Uh, as you have like a, a maldoc execution, you want to see if you can catch it earlier on via, you know, like a, a network IDS rule or something to that effect. Uh, and then to kind of tie things together, detection as a whole, uh, I like to think about it as more baselining, just with a little bit of uh, sparkling research, <laughs> if mm-hmm. you want to add it. Um right. If you think of it and approach it that way, rather than getting locked into like I'm a Linux detection engineer or a cloud detection engineer, which I, even though I technically am one of those, it really doesn't matter kind of what it is um, that you're trying to you know detect on or be a detection person on, as long as you understand how the system works, mm-hmm. uh, and then. Uh, at that point, you're really baselining a few different things, and again, coming back to the kill chain. Uh, I've always hated uh, the the phase called uh, the installation phase uh, because it's always been vague. There's always had kind of overlap. But the way that I always kind of mentally process it in my mind is as rather than being one kind of phase, breaking it out into two in my mental kind of model and thinking and having an execution and persistence phase, which uh, because it's a framework, it's great. You can just do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, just use it however uh, works best for you. But with that, it really helps to think about what you're trying to do or what the the threat actor is trying to do. So how would they execute code on your system? How are they going to achieve persistence? And that could be anywhere 
let's say, let's use a, an extreme on the opposite end, like maybe a vishing call execution being an actual phone call itself, maybe the persistence being, hey, give me a call back at this number or something to that effect. So really being able to identify those kind of pieces to it. And then as you start working like host-based detectors and start working with malware and that kind of thing, uh, you start looking at how is this executing code uh, mm-hmm. on a, the end system? Uh, how is it being delivered to the system? So uh, if you're going to execute code via Maldoc, you're limited to a few different ways. You have to call uh, something like WScript, PowerShell. You know, there's a, a few different ways to do it. But uh, essentially, once you get those baselines, you have a, a really strong detection coverage. So uh, starting with all of the various lull bins and such. One thing I was curious about with the cloud, like you think of Kubernetes or something like that, where these containers can, you know, exist for less than a minute or seconds even, is there challenges unique to that versus like a regular sort of EDR deployment where you have this persistent agent on endpoints that is always there? Yeah, so the cloud is actually really interesting because in a way uh, it's easier, but it's also a lot more difficult because you're playing de- uh, detection a lot further or a lot closer to the application. Uh, I guess you could say uh, deployment itself. And by that, I mean, assuming you're using uh, best practices, for the most part, uh, if you're running uh, on Kubernetes using containers, your container workloads are going to be immutable, just meaning they're not going to change. So you're probably not going to use a container as a database. You can, but it's you know it's not one of those things that's typically done as a best practice. Um, so uh, with that, uh, it really makes it easy to understand what you're going to have running in the container ahead of time. Essentially, you're, all you have to do with container detection is, again, extreme baselining because it, it, when you're uh, executing an application, you don't want even something like uh, wget or apt-get install uh, executing in a container uh, as you know, all of that should be done in your build pipeline. Right. Um, Things like a, an interactive shell, even again, you're not really trying to uh, um, uh, interact, interact with them in, in yeah, that way in, yeah. in production, unless there's a, a problem, or you know, of course, it's a, not a good guy. So, for a company operating in the cloud that may not be able to afford or have a security team in place yet, are there some simple things they can do to improve their security posture? Like, is there low hanging fruit? I, everybody always tells me 2FA on everything, but I'm thinking more like infrastructure level. Is there any like easy things that can up the security posture? Yeah, there's always 2FA. Um, the the thing that I like uh, to really focus on is authentication when it comes to the cloud. Just understanding, you know, your API endpoints are doing what they have the ability to create, and then also understanding even where those API calls are coming from. I guess that's actually a little more advanced, but you're outside of you know obvious like MFA type stuff. Uh, if you have the capability and you're running something like you know Kubernetes, uh, you can of course use the self healing aspect that really take uh, advantage of, you know, fixing vulnerabilities just early in that build pipeline without really uh, experiencing any downtime. So you can use uh, some of the more cloud native things, focusing on things, even just like cloud functions or just simple cloud applications and running, you know, just a basic, like if you're in GCP, 
uh, uh, cloud armor. Well, right. So there's just some real basic things that you can kind of do that are super straightforward, mostly taking forward, uh, like I guess. Vendor, vendor recommendations. Read the doc. Yeah. <laughs> the, the negative side of that is uh, you, of course, get a little more locked in. But um, the upside right. is, of course, you, you're managing less yourself. And again, you're, it's going back to getting as close to the application as possible and then right. controlling access around what you can and can't do. There's actually uh, a really great talk if anyone's interested. There was a 2018 Besides Augusta talk by uh, FireEye's uh, CTO, or maybe probably former cloud CTO, uh, Martin Holst, uh, where he talks about the anatomy of a cloud hack, and I just really love it. Um, and uh, if you uh, want the, a real high-level kind of run-through of it is essentially, you know, think about what the probable kind of attacks are in the cloud. Uh, I like to break it out as you have your your workloads, so things like your cloud compute, uh, your containers, your Kubernetes, uh, you know, your cloud functions, uh, but also your the the cloud uh, console itself. They call it uh, the cloud posture security monitoring, I, I believe. Uh, they have so many different acronyms uh, and whatnot, but uh, essentially thinking you want to manage the actual runtimes itself, so like your typical process stuff, but also you know, uh, again, going back to what are the API calls doing on your system uh, and that kind of thing. The overview of kind of what he was talking about is thinking of a, an attacker, you know, uh, maybe a developer accidentally publishes a, a, an API key for AWS or, you know, something in a public repo. Someone gets it. They have access to maybe stand up infrastructure in your cloud. Can you detect things like if they want to stand up 500 coin miners? Uh, mm -hmm. different uh, compute instances. Like, would you get an alert for that or a notification? Coin mining being one of the, the big ones uh, in the cloud, just I don't know why all of the uh, uh, Linux-based stuff, that they use all these crazy advanced techniques just to mine uh, some cryptocurrency. <laughs> but, but yeah, and then, uh, you know, there's obviously more that they can do than that, embedding themselves, taking advantage of even like cloud functions. Uh, again, going back to that persistence just mechanism uh, and maintaining access or spinning up infrastructure. I'm always curious about how people found their way into cybersecurity. Uh, no two paths seem to be the same. I want to know how you found technology and how that love of technology turned into a career in cybersecurity. So it started off with video games. <laughs> uh, I really got into video games as a, a kid. And uh, Whenever I got big into Counter-Strike 1.6, I got big into video game hacking. Right. Uh, and it turns out a lot of those uh, skill sets really carry over. <laughs> um, highly recommend the uh, video game hacking book uh, by No Starch, I believe it, it's called. Uh, it's definitely a sleeper. Uh, but from there, you know, I, just learning a lot of those techniques has just kind of stuck with me for forever. I, I grew up watching hackers and just that whole culture. The right. Matrix became popular and I was, you know, in that age. And I was just always interested in it. Uh, but I actually, so I didn't have a degree or anything. I was very fortunate. I was working at a, a state gig, which I highly recommend uh, checking out if you're looking to get started in uh, security. State they, gig being like US government. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even like state local. So like in my case, the state of South Carolina, uh, they often have uh, really good training programs, uh, such as SANS courses that you can get uh, and it's a really stable kind of position to build that kind of uh, foundation while also being exposed to, you know, the really cool threat actors like the, the uh, APTs that are targeting governments and such. 
going to get a little more technical again. Back in 2019, you co-authored a paper published by Soteria Security Solutions titled Detectors as Code. This is something near and dear to our heart at Lima Charlie. Uh, but given you're one of the first people to to publish this stuff, uh, I'd love it if you could explain this for the people listening uh, who may not be familiar with the term. Yeah, so uh, this was something that uh, a guy that I used to work with at Soteria, Brandon Poole, helped me co-author. And it was something that I thought we were really slick at the time because uh, I hadn't really heard of it outside of uh, kind of, you know, what we were talking about it internally. But it turns out a lot of places were actually doing it. They just weren't talking about it publicly. So the whole idea of detectors as code or how we kind of, uh, kind of uh, came across the, the problem is, you know, we were a, a cybersecurity company that needed a, a way to tune our detectors. Uh, we also wanted to have change control, that kind of thing built into them, just so that if we ever needed to revert them and maybe the person that wrote the rule left uh, is no longer there, you could easily understand, you know, what the previous, you know, mm-hmm. uh, detection logic might be. Uh, and we also needed a way to uh, deploy them quickly. So as we made changes, uh, we had various sensors and stuff, uh, both at the host and network level that we needed to get those rules out to. And doing that manually, uh, to be honest, kind of sucked. <laughs> so uh, we also uh, were, we had a lot of software developers in the company, uh, which allowed us to really kind of work with them and approach the problem. Like, you know, they've also had a lot of the same problems that we were having as detection engineers, you know, as deploying code, how can we get this version control built in so we don't have to go through a whole change board meeting and send emails mm-hmm. back and forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, we took that kind of mindset, looked at uh, how they kind of solved the problems that they had and really adapted it to cybersecurity. So essentially taking our detection logic uh, and then uh, codifying it in a YAML file. Um, there's an open source project that you guys have uh, built in as a first party uh, kind of add-on, I believe, uh, called Sigma that mm-hmm. actually takes this concept and uh, uh, really is taken off with it. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, it, it does just that. It takes the detection logic that kind of codifies it to a generic source, and then uh, a bunch of different tools and vendors can then take uh, that generic, uh, uh, I guess, detection logic and then apply it to their own tooling. So the change control process basically works the way that any sort of code commit would work. So the uh, detection logic is written in YAML, which can then run on a bunch of different tools, uh, once that commit's made, once that logic's made, there's a pull request process in place and it gets approved. And then you hit deploy and it automatically builds and pushes the rules out to production. Yeah. Uh, so that's actually exactly it. it it's yeah. just just like software. Uh, so the, the thing that uh, Lima Charlie actually makes super easy with the replay feature uh, is you can test uh, the code with the Lima Charlie SDK. So it's really easy to just build that into a pipeline. Does this mm-hmm. rule compile and does it match against this uh, uh, JSON? So if you can manually craft an event, you can put something together. But let's just say for whatever reason, you're doing something else and you just can't craft that event, or maybe that's not an option. Uh, they have tools like Miter's Caldera uh, that mm-hmm. you can take advantage of. They're uh, security automation tools. Um, that's a free open source one, some paid ones being like uh, Attack IQ. But, uh, and the idea being uh, you would write unit tests in there. And there being two main ones that you really want to focus on, just like in software development, you want to have regression testing. So as I tune a detector, 
is it still detecting on the action that I'm looking for, that core activity? Uh, and then also, um, as I uh, tune a detector, uh, can I still detect uncommon evasion techniques? And then the, the second piece really being the evasion techniques themselves. So essentially going through and red teaming um, your detector. So adding things in like escapes, uh, I call it high school casing, just uh, you know, capitalizing uh, every other letter, that sort of thing. Right. Just common uh, evasion, things that a, an adversary might do, and then does it detect it still on those? And then if so, pass it, deploy it. If not, fail it and go back and look at it. Do you have any advice for uh, security teams who may not be working with this sort of modern approach yet as like first steps to, to moving towards a better and brighter future? Yeah, so the best way that I can say to get started is there's not really a great, I guess you can say, uh, place to manage your detectors right now. So uh, getting your team familiar with Git and GitHub uh, and then building out a process uh, just kind of around that. So uh, at Soteria, the the actual uh, white paper that we did was our real process that we used. We had some, of course, secret sauce as well that we you know didn't publish, but uh, that was a the real overview. So getting even just a manual process of creating an issue. This is what I want to detect on. This is why it's important to detect on. Uh, here are some possible tests that might already exist within MITRE Caldera, or maybe even some that you might recommend. And then, of course, just making that a manual process, even if it's, you know, kind of tedious. But then what you can do along the way is start automating those tedious points, start, you know, building out your CI CD pipeline. It just becomes a natural flow. Awesome. That's great advice. Yeah. I'll link the uh, paper you guys wrote in the show notes as well. From conversations we've had in the past, I know that you did some work for defense counterintelligence and that you won an award. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. So um, I actually worked for an aerospace company. We were uh, not one of the the bigger ones. So we had, uh, uh, I think, around 350 employees at the time. Essentially, we won the. Uh, I was the SOC manager there while we won the Cogswell Award, which is an award from the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency for essentially having one of the top one percent of security programs for cleared facilities. So uh, I was always that's probably my most, I guess the the most proud I, I've been of a, a career uh, yeah. win right there. Uh, being a, a such a small company and still making it in the top one uh, percent, I think there was like thirteen thousand other. Oh wow, uh, that's a big field yeah. of competitors. Yeah, yeah. So that was a that was a lot of fun. Um, I was only a part uh, of a team of that, of course, and I did not do a lot of the, uh, I guess, reviews with the team with the government that did that. But you know, I of course built out the monitoring program. Uh, and we implemented the uh, detectionist code approach there. If you end up finding out what company it is, uh, I'm still actually on their website as the <laughs> their let the OSN so. folks uh, go do their thing. Yeah. yeah, you have hashtag Tiananmen Square at the bottom of your about section on LinkedIn with uh, no other context. So I was wondering if you could uh, explain that. Yeah. So. First of all, I'm always down for free speech, so I'm always just a big supporter of that. And then second, I saw on Twitter, uh, gosh, this was years back, that if you had something like that in your uh, LinkedIn profile, that it would have essentially some automated ban uh, for Chinese accounts that viewed your profile. And I didn't have any 
reason to you know interact with those at the time. Uh, so I thought that would be a great way to just knock out a lot of uh, potential people trying to do uh, OSINT on me. <laughs> oh, that's that's interesting. I may have yeah. to go at it now, but I'll have to explain it, it all the time. <laughs> it, it actually so. To be fair, it didn't work. I don't know if it just maybe became transparent or they changed it by uh, right. the time that I did it, for what it's worth. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think Kevin Beaumont tweeted about it a few years back. Oh, yeah. Uh, is that Gossy the dog? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm starting to recognize people in the real world versus their Twitter handles, <laughs> which actually brings me to one of my next questions. I've been hearing a lot about InfoSex folks moving off Twitter onto Mastodon. Uh, when researching for this interview, I noticed that you've moved onto Mastodon. Can you explain to me what the Exodus is about and tell me a little bit about Mastodon? I guess without going into anything uh, political, a lot of the people are leaving essentially wanting a place that's a little more safe to to speak or where they don't have to essentially feel forced to interact with uh, people that might hate them Mm -hmm. like Nazis or something to that effect. Uh, So that's led a lot of people to leave to uh, Mastodon. And I actually have been one of those, and I've really loved it. A big reason is it really feels like the old internet. And I didn't think that I would really notice that as an end user. But the way I like to describe it, if you're a gamer, is back in the old days, you might remember playing on Counter-Strike like a dedicated server where probably knew all the people in the server uh, and you could interact with them, and you had any rules that you wanted on that particular server that you could enforce, whether anybody liked it or not. And if nobody was on that server, you could go interact with other people on other servers. And that's kind mm-hmm. of how Mastodon works. So it's essentially a bunch of people host their own private instances, and then the, they run on a protocol called ActivityPub, which allows them to kind of interact with each other. It really gives you a view similar to Twitter. But it allows you to have it much more, uh, I guess you could say, distributed. And that's the whole point of it. And a lot of the benefits of that are actually, one, you can get better content moderation. So there's a lot of stuff that you'll see on not even just Twitter, a lot of different platforms. That's just flat information that sits there for, you know, God knows how long, racism, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Uh, you can have really strict uh, policies against those, and it becomes a lot easier to enforce them on a lot smaller scale. And they also have a lot of things to make it a, a more inclusive space. So things like content warnings, alt text, you can really force onto images and is much more used for people that might be visually impaired. It's just got a lot of upsides to it. and um, But it's one of those things, too, where uh, because people are running it on their own servers, and there's a, a mass exodus right now, uh, handling the load uh, can come with some downsides. So yeah, yeah, you gotta <laughs> the, the take that what it's worth. <laughs> but uh, my personal opinion is it's it's really great. I I just feel like it makes things like having uh, an Elon Musk type character who can be really polarizing coming in and um, kind of controlling it much more difficult just because you know no one person owns the the Fediverse as they call it. And uh, you also have the capability of blocking other Fediverses from interacting with yours. Uh, so if they don't have uh, as strict of rules as you want, you can just block them uh, as well. 
Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I created an account for Lima Charlie and I created a personal one, but I haven't had time to dig in yet. So I'm hoping to do that this weekend. Yeah, I, I, I really recommend joining the uh, infosec.exchange one. Uh, that's the one I'm on. It seemed all yep. the cool kids were going to that one. So <laughs> yeah, uh, feel f- uh, free to contribute to uh, Jerry, the host, too. He has uh, some information on the his uh, page. Oh, one of the other cool things about it is you go to a, a Mastodon server and there's no trackers. So your U block will have no hits on it where you hit like a Twitter and it's just full of like, like boom, 68 boom, plus. Boom. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about a few tools along the way, but, uh, you know, is there any single tool that you think uh, is maybe not as widely known as others, but is really powerful that InfoSec Pro should know about that you're a fan of? So I like to avoid specific tools. I always like to approach things as saying, you know, you should have a use case for whatever you're trying to do. But that said, there are companies that really say, this is the use case I'm trying to solve. This is all I'm trying to do. And uh, there's two of those that I can really name off the top of my head. Uh, one being Lima Charlie, of course, you know, taking all that infrastructure management away. Uh, like legitimately, it lets you focus on actually doing you know the the detection, the the security stuff, rather than having to manage, you know, a big Splunk instance or an Elastic instance, and then all the stuff that comes with that. But then the second being, uh, there's a tool called a uh, Sandfly. It's a Linux security monitoring tool, and it's really slick. So uh, it only does uh, Linux security monitoring. It can, of course, do containers as well. But the idea behind it is it's quote unquote agentless meaning it doesn't have an agent running consistently on the server. Uh, but what it does is it SSHs to the server in question, drops a pre-compiled uh, Golang uh, binary using only the static library, which is a big selling point, and drops wow. a huge uh, a yeah. attack chain for supply chain attacks off the surface. But it's a statically compiled binary, which makes it much harder to evade using like a... a shared object files and the LD preload stuff that might blind a typical EDR. Um, so it's a, it's a, got a big benefit of that, and then it'll delete itself. So come on, run, pull a whole bunch of information, then remove itself. And the benefits of it, too, are that it can run on every single uh, OS and uh, architecture. So if you have some crazy Linux you've never heard of, or maybe it's super old and no EDR supports it, as long as it has SSH it's probably supported even if it's an ARM-based or MIPS-based processor. So it, it's got a really cool feature set, and the amount of data it collects is really neat. But again, it's one of those that says, I, I know my lane. Linux monitoring is you know in a weak state right now. I'm just going to yep. do Linux monitoring. Yeah, I might have to uh, boot up my old Gen 2 machine and test the theory if it can run on anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whenever he said that, I actually... So a great use case even uh, is if you have a bunch of Arch developers in your dev team. And for real, you want to have you know security monitoring tools. It can be hard to find uh, tooling that supports that. It'll run on Arch uh, or even Manjaro running on a <laughs> Raspberry Pi. <laughs> oh, wow. What do you think the biggest threat to private organizations out there are right now? Is it still ransomware? Yeah. Um, I would say a combination of ransomware and uh, insider threats. Insider threats being, and this could also just be uh, a potential uh, a bias on the amount of cases that I saw uh, in the, you know, uh, my time as a consultant. 
But as uh, the economy kind of deteriorates and as threats where people are actually just reaching out to engineers and saying, hey, I'll give you $500 for your credentials. You know, if you work at a place that might be having layoffs, for example, and in the news, <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you might take someone up on that offer. Um, and, you know, with, again, with uh, the economy projected to not look so good, stuff like that, I just feel like is a, a lot more, there's a lot more Likely potential for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd probably say insider threats personally. I was recently talking with Eric Capuano, the CTO and founder of Recon InfoSec. And during our discussion, uh, the current state of the cybersecurity vendor market came up and he made what I think is a really great observation that a lot of solutions being put forward by vendors are dictating where the problems are, which makes it harder for defenders to actually solve the problems they have. And that companies are spending a lot of money on solutions to check boxes that may or may not even increase their security posture in a meaningful way. Does that resonate with you? Yes. And that actually goes back to what I was saying earlier on. I don't like to approach uh, a solution by product. I like to approach it by a use case. Um, and that will really help avoid that as a end user um, because that's totally true. And I absolutely agree. They'll add a lot of things that are, you know, maybe sound great, look great on paper, but don't add that much security value, uh, but maybe it adds a, a, a new selling point for them and it makes people swap over. Uh, whereas if you say, hey, you know, as a detection engineer, I need to be able to detect when someone ex -co uh, executes code on a system. Uh, so I want to have, you know, process execution logs. Uh, where do I get those EDR, Windows event logs? You know, uh, so always approach your problems with hey, here are the problems that I have, and then align your tooling to that. And you'll always have a, a much better approach. And that'll, again, it'll prevent vendors from really trying to sell you on things that you don't necessarily need. And, uh, you know. Yeah, and that's, that's going back to like understanding the primitives, like what are the problems look like at the nuts and bolts level and what makes the most sense to, to solve those problems. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, I'm super excited about this one. Uh, one of the things that I know you were following quite closely is the U.S. government's admission that they are aware of and have been tracking unidentified aerial phenomenon. For the people listening, can you give them the very high level of all the crazy stuff that's going on right now? Yeah, so this is one of my newly favorite topics. I had always been interested in UFOs, uh, kind of as just like a, you know, Mars Attacks is a cool movie. I never really gave him much thought until uh, uh, there was a 60 Minutes interview. I think it's been a few years back now uh, with a guy named Lou Elizondo, the former director of an organization in the Pentagon known as ATIP, which was the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. It also turns out later, I believe, that he was the head of uh, counterintelligence for uh, SAPOC, which is the Special Access Programs Oversight Committee, which is even cooler than the UFO part, but I digress. Uh, so the, but he came out and essentially said, yeah, I resigned because, you know, I didn't feel like this was taking, uh, being taken seriously as a topic. And he knew Secretary Mattis would uh, get his resignation letter and essentially became a quote unquote whistleblower, but has, has towed the line enough to apparently keep his security clearance. Uh, but all that to say, um, uh, Essentially, there's UFOs are real. <laughs> uh, my my opinion is uh, that if it's aliens, it's probably going to be a lot weirder than um, 
what we imagine. You know, alien means alien. And the more I look into it, the weirder it gets. So I, I always say, if you're approaching this, approach it from like a fun but open mind because it'll get really weird on you really quick. <laughs> uh, uh, so what they're seeing is in the, I guess the most famous case right now is known as the uh, Tic Tac case. It's from the uh, 2004 USS Nimitz where uh, two F-18 pilots and both of their uh, backseat, I think they call them weapon systems officers, all four uh, saw what they called a, a tic-tac-shaped UFO, and they described it as just bouncing around over uh, what looked like, they said, roiling whitewater. Essentially, like there's something just right under the water, but, you know, that they couldn't uh, really make out. And then there was a tic-tac-shaped object that had no wings, no control surfaces, no signs of propulsion, no kind of uh, signs of anyone being uh, inside of it. And the way that it flew was like taking a, a ping pong ball, putting it in a Pringle can and just shaking it because uh, mm -hmm. it was just so erratic and not something that, you know, you would see like in nature. They kind of said it seemed almost unbelievable and that, you know, if they didn't have it on their uh, radars, their uh, forward looking infrared cameras, all four of their eyeballs uh, to um, what are they called? I think they call them AWACS planes, which are those uh, basically flying. Yeah, or the, the flying radars, they caught them on those. And then the USS Princeton Spy-1 radar all tracked this on radar. So it was definitely something there. They tracked it essentially going from like, I think, 85,000 feet, which is really just the maximum of the Spy-1 radar uh, ceiling uh, of what it, where it can detect, uh, dropping from there to just above sea level uh, in like just a few seconds without making a sonic boom. Uh, and then essentially darting off to uh, what was known as their cap point, um, which is a point only the pilots and a few people on the ship knew ahead of time, uh, kind of as if it knew where they were going to be of uh, an advance. So it was a, a place that has a specific longitude, latitude, altitude, all that kind of stuff. And it was just shot there 60 miles away. I think they said in like four or five seconds, wow. uh, tracked all on radar. And then the uh, the one video that you see of the Tic Tac itself, uh, it's the one that flies off to the left side. It was a, a third plane. Uh, they were like, one of the pilots, this is according to David Fravor, was like, I want to get this thing on camera. So he flies out, he gets it. You see him switch through the white uh, infrared, the black infrared, just trying to flip through to see what he can get it to look like before it just flies off to the side, just sitting there hovering and just zooms off. Uh, disappears is what they say. Well, so, so what was the fallout from that? I guess it's, it's all public now. And I think they, they talked about it in Congress, right? Like it's, it's being dealt with as a serious and real. Yeah. Threat. So um, because of all of that, uh, they've passed legislation in uh, 2022, the NDAA created uh, an office called the uh, AARO, uh, the Advanced Aerial Reconnaissance Office or something. I might be messing that up. Uh, essentially an office dedicated to uh, investigating UFOs um, with a, a mandate to work with and be a joint program office to essentially work with both public and private industry, places like the FAA, the different intelligence agencies, the DOD, uh, NASA, uh, et cetera, and all essentially kind of come together, share their data, uh, and then report on it uh, twice a year in a biannual unclassified report. The first one was supposed to be released uh, October 31st of this year. Here we are 10 days later, not posted. So, huh. you know, feel free to email your reps on that one. 
but um, since then, it's actually gotten even crazier. There's been public hearings on the topic the, uh, where they essentially confirmed, one, that that ATIP program was real, the uh, one that the 60 Minutes whistleblower was from, two, that they did have radar data uh, and stuff all confirming this, and that they're also in the waters uh, in the ocean, that they had uh, underwater data tracking them. Uh, oh, wow. which they discussed uh, behind closed doors. And then after that, um, I guess, classified session, there's a great video by a guy named Red Panda Koala that has like a, just a news update. But everyone from the Senate and uh, House uh, Intel and Armed Services Committee uh, has all commented on it, essentially saying they'll either say something along the lines of, I don't know that it's necessarily out of this world, but uh, it's definitely something that we don't understand. and defies our current understanding of explanation. And then you have people that are will go on a podcast. I, th- I think it was Rep. Mike Gallagher went on the Pat McAfee show and talked about how he thought it was the future human kind of hypothesis, that it was hmm. humans uh, from the future coming back to witness potentially some sort of event based on the information that he's seen behind closed doors. Oh, wow. Uh, and the, it, so... What did you say? Go into it with an open mind and don't take it too seriously, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it gets crazier. So in that same hearing, uh, Mike Gallagher introduced uh, what's known as the Wilson Davis memo, uh, where uh, the the TLDR of that is uh, Admiral Wilson was the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, supposedly became aware of a... uh, UFO reverse engineering program that had been moved to the private sector to be out of uh, government oversight, essentially, so you could be FOIA-free, all that kind of stuff. And apparently, he was denied access to it, and he was just really pissed. And uh, he was introduced to Dr. Eric Davis, who was also an ATIP consultant, uh, for what it's worth, but uh, was doing uh, that kind of work with, um, I guess, the government back then, too, under a different name, NIDS. But he it's essentially uh, what the notes Dr. Eric Davis wrote of a conversation that he had with Admiral Wilson, allegedly. They were never supposed to be public. They got leaked out of Edgar Mitchell's uh, estate whenever he died, the astronaut. And um, But yeah, so they got checked in to Congress uh, and essentially asked to see if, you know, to validate their, uh, see if they're real, uh, that kind of thing. And also since then, uh, for 2023, they have apparently been really disappointed in the, uh, the office. And uh, you can tell uh, a guy named Christopher Mellon has been helping them write the, the language in the bills because the new language gets a lot more specific. Uh, down to even specifying, we want this office to uh, focus on non-human uh, craft or uh, objects that are of non-man-made. You know, I forget. Right. The exact don't don't take the budget and go look at China's new yeah. satellite. Well, you focus I, on these things we don't understand. Apparently, a big part of the problem was, you know, as a way to kind of blow it off. If you you know believe, you know, all the behind-the-scenes kind of rumors, <laughs> uh, was they you know, get a balloon and then spend all their time investigating stuff that didn't necessarily show any kind of crazy traits, you know, like dropping 85,000 feet and not having uh, a sonic boom boom or something uh, just as a way to, you know, waste the time. So they got way more specific language and the Intelligence Authorization Act for 2023 
they've ordered the uh what is it the gao i forget what it stands for i think it's the or the government oversight i don't know some the one of the oversight uh, organizations <laughs> yeah to go back all the way to january 1st of 1947 uh, to get a uh, a list of every attempt by the uh, intelligence agencies and the military to obfuscate, uh, misinform, mislead the public uh, and on the topic uh, just of UFOs in general over the years uh, to have like a compiled list. They've also requested that any NDAs that have been signed relating to any kind of crash retrieval programs, they have to be uh, brought forward with the idea being, you know, who uh, signed off on the NDAs. You can get then a paper trail to find out more about the programs. Right. Uh, they also have added language to provide uh, whistleblower protections, which uh, in 2023. So uh, should there be a reverse engineering program out there, uh, whistleblowers will be protected to to blow the whistle on it. Hmm. And if you wow. believe the rumors, uh the uh, and do. this is i do believe the rumors uh so but th- th- there's reasons so the reasons why i believe the rumors is because uh, the the room the people saying the rumors are fairly credible it's people like christopher right. mellon uh who he was uh on the the intelligence uh the senate intelligence committee's liaison uh to the special uh over or to saphawk the special access oversight program uh committee or whatever so he's been one of the ones kind of hinting that or saying something along the lines that he's been told that once uh, that legislation passes, that he knows people that are credible and are in the position that they would know that are willing to come forward and testify. Um, and that's just already there. Uh, he's also made comments like, you know, this legislation doesn't get written without some sort of like it doesn't get written in a void so like they're using the the language that they are after having these classified briefings after getting these reports so you know keep that in mind uh and then there's also a third kind of reference to that or actually four um ross coltart uh he was a 60 minutes uh porter out of australia's 60 minutes uh that focused on national security who's since left to focus on the ufo topic uh, because it's getting so big. He's recently said the same thing, uh, that he's got some sources saying the same. And uh, Dr. Gary Nolan from uh, Stanford, uh, the head immunologist, one of the Nobel Prize winners, and one of the former ATIP consultants headed, uh, helped head the project management for it, has also said that he's spoken to him himself, and he's said the same thing. And he also, fun fact, was the person that briefed uh, Rep Gallagher about the Wilson Davis memo. So hmm. maybe that's uh, there's some vali- yeah. validity there. Yeah, interesting. So uh, run for a I, fun I, 2023. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle any more fun. <laughs> no kidding, man. Well, yeah. I I basically landed on this. It's and I hate this word, so please forgive me. It's either a weird <laughs> psyop, and I only say it because there's so many people from the government actually saying this is not human uh, yeah. and stuff, and you know, actively having a clearance, and you know, you can't. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure you can like lie and stuff to some degree, but you can't go on the news like 60 minutes and then lie to the public and keep your clearance. Uh, So, um, yeah, it's either like some sort of weird psyop to what end, more oversight, you know, or... What what uh, about breakthrough technology? Yeah, I was going to say, or it's breakthrough technologies, which everybody is like, oh, it's just humans. And it's like, 
that's just also really cool because A, it means we probably have some sort of power source that could fix our energy problems. And right. B, I can join Starfleet uh, <laughs> as soon as it gets created. And then, or a, an equally cool kind of thing, it's aliens or some sort of non-human intelligence, you know, whatever yeah. that may mean. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if it is that one, it's probably going to be something a little more weird. And yeah. uh, one of the questions that I actually get asked about a lot is like, if it is aliens, why don't they just come, you know, land and say, hey, uh, or introduce <laughs> themselves? And it's like, well, you don't go whenever you move into a new house. Do you go uh, try and establish uh, diplomatic relations with the ants in your yard? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, so keep an open mind. Uh, yeah. That's all I'm yeah. Say. Hope for the best. <laughs> keep an open mind. At this point, oh. it's it's pretty big. Uh, so this is the last one I have for you. Uh, I ask it of everybody on the show. Do you have any predictions for the future? Uh, for UFOs or security or both? As <laughs> it, wide or narrow as you want. I usually get answers uh, involving cybersecurity from people. but uh... My prediction for the future of cybersecurity is it's going to get closer and closer to the applications. Uh, themselves. So, uh, you know, we mentioned going to detection as code, infrastructure as code. Uh, a lot of the stuff is now being codified so that you catch things before they're ever deployed. Uh, and I think that as we move further and further to that, uh, as, you know, software companies are held to, you know, higher standards through, you know, legislation that, you know, gets passed in the future, I just feel like it's going to move closer and closer to that that front. And then on the UFO front, I'm hoping uh, for whistleblowers to blow the lid on the <laughs> that reverse engineering program. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, I'll make sure to have some popcorn so. ready. <laughs> yeah, ditto. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking with me, David. This was a really fun one. Uh, hoping to have more fun ones. Uh, it's still getting my, uh, my sea legs in this whole podcast thing, but uh, this was great. So thanks very much. Yeah, ditto. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Cheers. And that is a wrap for this, the sixth episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. If you found value from this podcast, it would be really helpful if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you're listening from. Again, thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.